idea like the goal is to come home and have dinner with your family. Yeah, that was really maybe the first eye-opening experience. Like, okay, this phenomenon and hazard out there is like super real and it's very complex and pretty scary. It's going to take a lifetime to, to master it. This is Eddie Schoen, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Welcome back. You're tuned in to episode 7.2 of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by 10 Barrel Brewing. I hope you all are doing real well out there. Hope you're enjoying the changing of the seasons and the crisper fall air. Maybe some colors in the leaves. And I'm sure you're attending some snow and avalanche regional workshops. Let's see, last week uh, our friends in Silverton had the Four Corners Snow and Avalanche Workshop. Uh, if you attended, hit us up on the social media. Let us know what talks you really enjoyed post some photos tag us in the photos maybe you're just coming back from the colorado snow and avalanche workshop taking place in breckenridge uh, just yesterday and coming up on the 16th of october tomorrow is the northwest snow and avalanche workshop in seattle looking ahead to next week on october 21st and 22nd is the wyoming snow and avalanche workshop and on our next episode, I'll let you know what else is coming up. Like I said, if you've attended some of these and you really enjoyed some of the, the speakers or some of the talks, reach out, let us know what you liked, um, post some pictures. We'd love to see what you're doing out there. Other things on your horizon maybe in the fall here should be check your gear out. It's not too early to check your gear out. The last couple of years, it's been really hard to order new things mid-season such as beacons shovels and probes so go through your avalanche rescue equipment and make sure it's in good working order check your beacon against the beacon manufacturer's website make sure there aren't any recalls there have been lots of recalls lately and so check your serial number against uh, serial numbers affected in some of those recalls you can find all that information on the manufacturer's website of whoever made your beacon. Check your probe, make sure that the cable um, or connection device within the, within the probe is intact and it's not cracked or wearing out. Put your shovel together, it should go in nice and easy. Those spring clip buttons should pop out nice and easy. Make sure everything's nice and smooth. Maybe think about retiring some of that old tired gear and re-upping this season. And it's not too early to sign up for an avalanche course. In the U.S., of course, we have our avalanche awareness program. We have an A3 approved level one course, an avalanche rescue course that's standalone that should be taken either before or after your level one. We have a recreational level two, and then we have that for both human powered and snow machine specific. Pro side of things, we've got our Pro 1 and Pro 2 
provided by select avalanche education providers throughout the U.S. Um, so for more information on that, you can go to AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org um, and find a provider that might suit your needs this winter. Again, just like all that gear, it's selling out fast. So don't wait to sign up for an avalanche course this year. Many of them are already filled up. Additional support for today's episode is provided by Athletic Greens. I've changed my routine about my health and nutrition and vitamin supplement routine. And now I'm using AG1 every day. It's a great way to start out my day. It's the first thing I do every morning is I just take one scoop of AG1 by Athletic Greens and mix it into about 12 ounces of water. Before I started taking AG1, I was trying to take four or five different supplements a day and probably three days a week I'd forget to at least take one of them. Um, So I really love the simplicity of AG1. I know that I'm getting everything I need. It's got 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens to help you start your day right. I find that I have increased energy, increased focus, and I get sick less. It tastes great, and I also really enjoy the benefits of the probiotics on my gut health. I know you'll love it too. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Make it part of your routine. On today's episode, we sat down with Eddie Shun. Eddie's guided all over the world throughout his career as a mountain guide and calls the front range of Colorado home at this time, although has a special spot in his heart for the Pacific Northwest where he also does some ski guiding work. Eddie and I talk about his path to becoming a fully certified IFMGA guide, the process of that, um, as well as some of his recent avalanche education, taking an ops level two up in Canada, and some of the differences that he found between his avalanche education in the States and that in Canada. Uh, We talk about risk management and kind of the mindset between personal skiing and skiing with guests while ski guiding. Eddie's been able to diversify his work through his role as project and accounting manager for VEASAN Avalanche Control. He talks about his role there and some of the things involved in planning for and installing remote avalanche control systems throughout the United States and Canada. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eddie Shun. All right, welcome to the show, Eddie. How you doing, man? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing great. It's early October, and um, yeah, just awaiting the snow to fly. Of course, there's plenty to do in the fall. What have you been up to lately? I've been trying to just get out rock climbing as much as possible. Great weather for it right now out in the front range, and uh, yeah, I think just in the last week or so, the temps have started to drop, and I'm starting to get pretty, pretty excited about the winter. I'm definitely a cold weather person, so I'm enjoying the some snow falling up high in the mountains, so it's getting there. Awesome. 
Well, Eddie, you give us a little bit of your background, where you're from, and kind of your entry into the industry, maybe reflect on some early mem- memories of winter backcountry recreation. Who's Eddie Shun? Uh, so I, I grew up in Chicago, of, of all places, and uh, yeah, like thinking about my earliest kind of winter memories, it was just sledding and like playing in the snow growing up, and, and it's, you know... <laughs> Talking about climate change, it's, it doesn't seem to be, very, be a very snowy place anymore. But at least my memory growing up was it, it was always snow covered in the winter growing up. We'd have these like crazy wind drifts out the, outside the house. And we would just go to this like local sledding hill. And I just, I always loved the snow and the cold. And I think at some point when I was in like sixth grade, my parents took us out skiing in Illinois, this, this place called Chestnut Mountain. And, uh, you drive into the place and it was the type of resort where the whole base area is at the top. And then you'd ski down, like right down to the Mississippi river, like all mega, like 200, 300 vertical feet of, of icy skiing. But um, yeah, they took us that first time. It was, it was night skiing, you know, probably cause it was much cheaper to take your family of five. And they had no idea what they were getting into and getting me into. But from that moment, I was just hooked on sliding on the snow and, uh, from there, I got really into snowboarding and it just kind of spent like high school years, like obsessed with snowboarding and, and just riding like the icy parks out in the Midwest. And I still don't know exactly where the obsession came from because it's it, like didn't come from like family or, or anyone, but I had like a good group of friends in high school that we all had this, you know, in, in that time and place, a very strange obsession with, with snowboarding. We'd, we'd drive like four hours each way just to go ride for like three or four hours and drive back and yeah a lot of good memories just cold icy down you know like low-key kind of family resorts um and i've loved it ever since a little later on like after college i was working in snowboard shops in chicago kind of doing my best to be a snowboard bum in the big city and eventually uh, i got made my way up to vermont and you know my my dream job at that point and going through college was to work in the snowboard business. So ultimately found myself working for Burton snowboards in their, their finance department and did that for a few years. And so I, I in, in that period, I, I also got, then I got hooked on rock climbing because one of our, one of my good friends went out to Utah for school and got into climbing and got us into it. And that sort of took over as the main obsession. And I found myself, you know, like kind of, having this this dream job but i was still just kind of sitting at a desk and staring at spreadsheets and it was it was a great company to work for and like great culture and got to snowboard and outside a lot but um at that point started thinking about like i wanted to teach rock climbing and and somewhere in there i came across the mga somehow and and i remember i looked up this like chat i used to have like a, a google chat with my buddies we'd all be like sitting at work in our offices and I was like, guys, like, there's this thing we can all do. We can become mountain guys. Like, wouldn't that be sweet? And they were all like, yeah, whatever, man. Um, but after finishing the, the whole MGA program last year, I, I like dug up that chat, you know, the magic of everything never really going away on the internet. But it was like almost 10 years to the day um, that I kind of like that spark was planted. And, uh, 
yeah, at that those years living on New England, it was uh, getting into splitboarding a little bit, just kind of wandering around the woods out there, not really worrying about avalanches. It was no one really wore beacons or anything, but you're just kind of riding powder in the woods. And uh, then the AMGA started allowing splitboarders into the ski program, and I think that was like what really set it in motion for me. I was like, oh, this is something I could do. And I really wanted to like just share the experience with people and, and uh, yeah, kind of went, went from there. Um, so you started doing a little more split boarding and kind of at the, at that time you entered the AMGA track, like while you were still living in Vermont. Yeah, it was actually when I left my, you know, partner at the time and I kind of did the summer road trip thing. We quit our jobs and, went off and I was like, I'm not going back to accounting and had signed up for my rock guide course. I think that was November, 2015. And yeah, just, just took it from there. And then around that same time, I decided I wanted to go through the ski program and be able to do it on skis or a split board. And so naively at that age, I was like, Oh, I'll just get some skis and learn to ski. And, uh, that turned into like, you know, solid six years of doing nothing but working on skiing kind of like <laughs> took over from climbing and everything. It was like all encompassing for those years. Yeah. It's pretty smart to diversify the skill set, and, and I think it makes you a better guide to, to do both, you know, like you have that perspective for guiding snowboarders that some, some skiers ski guides who don't snowboard have to really work on, you know? Yeah. It, and <laughs> it got to a point, I actually, when I was first hired by, Martin Vulcan out of PGS a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I answered a call for a splitboarding guide and I was like, you know, I, I don't splitboard that much anymore because it pretty quickly skiing took over. Like I fell in love with skiing and I just found it a much better tool for getting around the mountains. And uh, maybe it's inherent laziness on my part, but, you know, I realized I was, I was like subtly talking any splitboard clients into skiing. <laughs> I'd be out on the split board and be like, yeah, you know, if we were on skis right now, like we, we could avoid this whole transition. And, and so I, I kind of, I realized I was doing a disservice to the, the dedicated split board guys that are out there and, and sold my split board a few years ago and just focused on skiing. And so this year, maybe I'll take the snowboard out and ride lifts a little bit, but I've kind of forsaken the, the split boarding even to the people yeah. who are, much more committed to it than, than myself. <laughs> there you go. What about uh, early memories of avalanche education? What was your first avalanche course you took? Uh, my first, yeah, I took a level one out in New Hampshire. And it's funny thinking back on it. I mean, we'd just be like, we'd be going ice climbing and just booting up these loaded coolars. I mean, you know, the smugglers not sure. Yeah? I mean, it's, there's no avalanche mm-hmm. center or forecast per se. And there's kind of this, fallacy that you don't really have to worry about the avalanches out there but i remember booting up this coolar and just kind of like sticking my hand in the snow and, and the the partners i had at the time like they weren't skiers they weren't snowboarders and so they all kind of looked to me as like the one that actually knew something about avalanches mainly because i you know grown up watching snowboard videos um, and i'm just like sticking my hand in i'm like yeah you know it's like harder here and softer under there but i couldn't explain what a slab was or what was, you know, more stable or less stable. And it was kind of sketchy looking back on it. So yeah, first level one out in the white mountains. Um, I think I was, I was like 
the worst student. I remember at the end of the course, the instructor asking us like, okay, do you have any final questions? And I was like, yeah, I got one. So, all right, we're standing on the top of the run, you know, we're ready to drop in and how do we make that go? No go decision. And the guy just probably like face palmed himself and was like, you didn't get a single thing from this course. Um, so that was my, my first experience with it. And, you know, I didn't really have access to mentors out there. And, um, shortly after I took a level two, uh, with Mark Chauvin and that was kind of my first, what I kind of consider my first piece of guide training. And it was uh, a course he'd set up for specifically for guides out there who were trying to get through the program. I think we were all trying to get into the Alpine guide course at that point. So, um, kept in touch with a few of those, those students are in that course too. And, and, uh, yeah, that was really maybe the first eye-opening experience of like, okay, this phenomenon and hazard out there is like super real and it's very complex and pretty scary. It's going to take a lifetime to, to master it. Um, shortly after that, I made my way out to Colorado and, uh, yeah, obviously getting exposed to the continental snowpack out here gave me a pretty pretty deep respect for for snowy mountains and and the avalanche phenomenon and um since then i've just tried to kind of get around and, and spend as much time in different types of snowpacks and mountain ranges as as i could yeah and so these days you're you're kind of guiding all over the globe um or you and you have in the past both climbing and skiing right um You've, you've done some ski guiding in Japan, right? Yeah, in uh, 2018, I spent the winter out there. Um, and that was really like my first season where I was like like heavily ski guiding. Because it's, I mean, we all know it's kind of a hard thing to get into in the States. There's just not that much opportunity and not as nearly as big of a market for it as, you know, places like Canada or in Japan. So Japan was a really cool opportunity for me to, to go out and just be guiding every single day, day in, day out. And, um, yeah, just kind of trying to figure out the more of the soft skills of, of ski guiding. And it's a nice, mm-hmm. nice venue for it. Cause it is, you know, about as friendly as it gets from an avalanche hazard and it's pretty easy to deliver the goods. Um, so it, I would recommend for a lot of people getting into it. Like, consider spending a season or two out there. What was the company you were working for there? Uh, I was working for a small company you know, there's a, a couple kind of bigger guiding ones. And I took a job with this one that was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with like the Naseko guiding scene, but there's this kind of thing where there's all these ski schools that I don't know, maybe in the last few years started to offer like backcountry guiding. And so it was, it was, enticing to me because they were trying to build their their ski guiding program and so i was able to kind of come in and help build like a just like an operating plan for them risk management plan erps and um you know just kind of set it up and by the end of the season i think we had like five ski guides kind of working some kind of on call but yeah it was kind of up to me to to run that which is exciting had had some definite challenges um and I'm sad not to go back. I ended up, um, you know, between the pandemic and uh, taking my current job with Visa and Avalanche Control, 
uh, haven't been able to go back for a season, but have done a, a personal trip since then. And it's a really, really special place. Would you say you, you had a hand in kind of developing the forecasting program that, that they were using there? And, and if so, maybe talk about the process you went through there. Yeah. The, so they didn't really have anything in place. So basically the owner would kind of start taking our clients out and then started, you know, getting a bit more demand and would like hire people from other ski schools. So I uh, was starting from scratch there. And then at that time, there was the Niseko Avalanche Bulletin, which is um, pretty unique. Like it's not the standard, like international uh, standard of like an Avalanche Bulletin, right? It was kind of one guy and, and it was driven more towards the resorts and whether or not they'd open the gates into the side country. And so I started kind of creating our own forecasts, working with our guides and just other guides I knew there. And just there was no communication really between guide services. I think a lot of people were just a very different environment than like Canada and the U S where we, we really value the information exchange. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with maybe the local government and like implications with police and, and kind of liability. You have all these, you know, non-Japanese operations that are kind of under the radar and trying to kind of stay that way. So, um, I ended up just putting it out on a blog cause I had lots of friends that were coming over that season and there, everyone was kind of hitting me up for information and it wasn't really out there. So kind of scary, you know, like all of a sudden you're like, like, okay, I feel pretty confident in, in maybe my forecasting, but I'm going to put this out here on like a somewhat public forum. Um, and I think it was pretty helpful. Like we, we got Facebook group going just for like locals to, to share observations and, and all that. And I just looked, looked it up actually today. Cause I was curious, it's still going. Um, and now actually like the, the Japanese avalanche network is publishing like a, uh, so what is it? So maybe like three days a week or weekends, but they're putting out an actual bulletin now for, uh, for the Niseko area, which is pretty cool to see. Nice. Nice. One night we did like a, just an awareness talk at one of the bars and a bunch of locals came out and, you know, these people that have been living and working there for, for years were under the impression that if the, the gates were open, that it was like totally kosher to just roll out at the resort with no gear. And like, it, it was most of the people you'd see coming off the lifts and heading out the gates had no backpacks, probably no transceivers, no partners. Um, and there's, there's definitely places you can get into trouble out there, you know? So, uh, it's good to see that that's, that's progressing and getting more in line with kind of where we're at in the U S at least with the awareness amongst like the general skiing and riding public. Eddie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think last year you completed a CAA ops level two course. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping to kind of pick your, pick your brain a bit about that and, and your experience, why you decided to go take that course and just some of the, some of the nuances of your experience there. Yeah. Uh, it, it's kind of been a, a bit of a dream of mine for a while now, just having known a few people, Americans who've gone through it and just kind of talked about like a, just how difficult it is to get into the program and, and just the quality of the, the education there really was enticing to me. So, um, 
you know, for me, not having grown up in the mountains, I feel like more so than, than like, had I like grown up around that, I, I feel like I've, I've got to catch up and kind of play the, the perpetual student. Like, I think we all, most of us share that desire to, mm-hmm. to continue learning and all that. But um, yeah, I'm always looking for, for more opportunities for like just good formalized learning in, in addition to like mentorship and experience and all that. And um, the Canadians do it, I think better than anyone else. Um, yeah. Coming into that program, uh, even as an IFMGA mountain guide, like I was kind of intimidated, you know, it's like everyone in the course showed up super dialed, like the standard and the expectation is just super high. And it's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, the, the level of professionalism and skill that people have coming into that program, like as, as the prereqs is higher than anything I, I saw in the U S. Um, and previous to that, you had taken a pro two or a level three before the pro rec split. Yeah, I, I did the pro two. I actually did the first, it was the first pro two that, um, AI ran, which was kind of interesting. So mm-hmm. they were, I think working out some kinks in the, the new system and all that. And it was, it was great. Like I, I think AI is one of the, the best, if not the best providers for pro courses in the, in the States and yeah, had great instructors, but I think a lot of people going through it at that point, there was quite a few students who were just trying to, again, kind of get through their Alpine track and needed it for that, for guiding and maybe weren't necessarily coming in as, as skiers or, or riders. Um, and just the, I think the length of the course and the, if you compare the curriculums, you know, the, the level two and under the CAA program just goes more into depth. You know, a lot of the, the key topics are the same, but it just goes deeper. Um, mm-hmm. and, and as a testament to that, even to get into the program, I mean, I think it took me like a couple months to complete the application. It's like, you got to go through like every learning outcome and, and, sort of provide evidence of your experience or um, previous training with that. And I had to pull like everything from pro ones, pro twos, work experience, um, both guiding and ski patrolling. And I got in no problem, but it's a process and it's cool. Like Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you look more at the rec side uh, in the U S our standard for, for example, becoming like a rec one instructor is pretty low. I mean, I was, I was teaching rec ones, like, you know, granted with a, a group of instructors, like big courses. So we had like four instructors and, and a lot more experience on the course leader side, but yeah, I was teaching my first rec one before I even took a ski guide course. And I, I like to think I delivered a decent course, but <laughs> looking back on it, I don't know, it probably wasn't the best best experience for students. So I, I think like having that, just that kind of barrier to get into the courses just, just sets the bar a lot higher. Um, yeah. Do you not to go on a huge tangent here, but do you think that's a function of just greater demand these days for avalanche courses? I mean, I, I know most course providers are screaming for avalanche instructors. At least they have been in the last couple of years. And I think maybe that's catching up a bit, but do you think that really came from a function of just demand within the U S which is ultimately a good thing, but 
maybe we have a bit of catch up to do. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I think it's just the demand is insane right now and no one can seem to keep up with it. And I think every every provider out there like wants to do their best and provide the best course possible. But, you know, if you, you got to A, fill the seats and then staff the courses and it's, yeah, uh, not running a, an operation or guide service. I can't speak to that too much, but I do think the demand is huge. And I think just a changing demographic of people taking the courses. And I think it's just our, our industry as a whole is kind of still in like the maturing phase compared to a place like Canada. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't have a, a solution for it per se, but um, I can, I can say I, I noted the difference and I haven't, haven't like experienced any of the AST courses in Canada. Um, but I believe like to, to instruct those, you have to have completed your pro two. So a little bit of a higher standard just in terms of formalized training to even be an instructor there. So, um, I don't know if we could, I don't think we could do that in the U S and still get everyone who wants to take a course and in, in, into a course. So yeah, kind of a double-edged sword, right? Like, cause you want people to, to get the training get the education and, and I think the area is doing like a great job of building that awareness. And, and, you know, as much as I might sit here and be like, Oh, the standards low to, to teach these things. Like, you know, delivering that first level course also doesn't require like uh, maybe more than, than we have right now. But, but I think maybe it creates a gap. Like you have maybe the more advanced student. Um, I don't know. Maybe they'd be served by like a, more differentiation in courses or sort of like advanced level ones or level twos. I don't know. We, we yeah. can ponder on that for, for hours. I'm sure. I think it, it allows the instructors of, of any avalanche course, you know, to, the ability to, to kind of split the student population up into groups that, you know, you might be able to dive a little bit deeper in the field uh, with a more advanced group. And I, I that's what I try and do on my, my courses at least, you know, um, try and try and cater to, to the needs of every student. So, yeah, totally. Um, it's, it's a, it's a good problem to have, and I think it's an interesting challenge and I think we're, we're making great progress on it in the States overall. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I agree. Would, would you recommend, you know, taking a ops level two to other Americans or like what, who would benefit that from that the most in your opinion? I, I mean, in my experience, I think, anyone could could benefit from it so like even having taken the pro two and you know having worked in the field i think maybe i would have gotten maybe some of the same things had i just gone back and taken another pro two and i tell this to like students a lot in rec courses like um in terms of their progression like consider getting out there and applying the stuff for a few years and then go back and like retake a level one you know, like that can be as, as valuable maybe as like a level two course. Um, but I think, yeah, again, like there, there is a bit more depth to the Canadian program. And um, if you're interested in the mechanized side of things, there's a heavy influence of that. I mean, almost every instructor on both modules was like, you know, works a lot in the heli ski world. Um, so not always directly relevant if you're just touring or, or forecasting for, for some other operation. But I think that perspective, you know, just cause you're, 
you're exposed to so much more terrain so much more quickly. So you, you have to have like such a robust, like operational framework to work in. And so I think there's a lot of takeaways and lessons from that, that, that we can apply to even just backcountry ski guiding and ski touring in the States. You probably got it quite a bit of utilization with InfoX. I'm, I'm sure you use it in the States these days for pro guiding service and, and others, but um, any takeaways from that? Um, it, I haven't used it in any operations I've worked at in the States, you know, outside of AMGA programs. And there is in the Northwest, like definitely a, a push to get on the, the international InfoX. Um, it's, it's amazingly beneficial up in Canada just cause it's, it's fully adopted and, and everyone's using it. And like the amount of data that they're using, you know, not just the influx, but like their, their mountain information network. Um, a lot of the guide operations have access to like specialized weather forecasts. Um, so they're, they're noticeably more data heavy, um, in, in, in the best way, I think they've used it long enough where they know how to filter it down and, and find the relevant info. And that's like a big part of the, the level two is like every morning, like an hour minimum in the classroom, like just kind of chiseling out and hammering down your morning meetings and like your small groups to like as close to perfection as possible. You know, and it's, it's all about like finding the relevant information and filtering it and, you know, integrating that into your plan for the day, um, which can be tricky with that much data. Um, so it, it can be overwhelming, but um, it's a really amazing tool. And I'd, I'd love to see it here. I think we also just like, we're so spread out geographically. Like we don't have the number of operations maybe in like a similar area to get as much use out of it. But I, I again, like the information sharing is, is huge in my mind. And I'd love to see more more progress on that front. Right. Certainly leaps and bounds in the last uh, five years, just amongst the avalanche centers and the willingness of recreating public to submit observations to their avalanche center. I always take the time to plug it on the podcast, you know, like no matter what you're seeing or not seeing out there, it's always worthwhile letting your forecasters and, and other skiing public know what's going on, what you're seeing out there. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that's in the U.S. Maybe we need to rely more heavily on the those observations from the non-professionals um, just to cover our, our wider areas. Whereas in Canada, they have there's just so many professionals working that like they have to filter out the you know like the non-professional observations. But um, yeah, it's a good point. I think like. I love seeing all the avalanche centers kind of get more, more consistent across the board. And yeah, just the getting the public observations is, is super helpful. I don't mm -hmm. necessarily envy the forecasters who sit in the office and have to filter through it all every morning, but um, I definitely encourage people, like you said, to, to share what they're seeing out there because it can be pretty critical. Right. Eddie, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, um, kind of any differences that you have between taking folks out when you're ski guiding and when you're just skiing on your own with trusted partners you know I think there's I think about this a lot and and we teach avalanche courses and we preach to use a risk management process 
some form of process. And I'm just kind of curious if other avalanche professionals and guides kind of stick to that in their personal time too, or whether um, they have other ways of doing things, or if it just kind of becomes a bit innate in your patterns and rituals and habits when you're going out for a bigger day, bigger objectives, maybe trickier avalanche problems, and you're with trusted partners. Talk about kind of your process for those two scenarios. Yeah, I I tend to be an overthinker. Um, and so I spend, yeah, whether I'm, I, I think at this point, like whether I'm working, whether guiding or, or going out doing other sorts of work professionally or just out recreational with um, whatever partners I'm out with, but I try not to differentiate there in terms of my process. Um, I have a few thoughts on that. I think at times I've noticed like when I am out with, with a loved one or, or, you know, a close friend and like it, it feels different than when I'm guiding and it, it bothers me, you know, like um, I think it's just almost more of that, like not, not to like pretend to know what it's like to be a parent because I'm not a parent, but sort of that like parental sort of, overprotectiveness like especially when I'm out with like my partner for example I I feel more tense than I do than when I'm out guiding and I don't know if it's you know you're just kind of normalizing the the weight of that risk that you take when you're working at some point if you keep that weight on you constantly like you're gonna you just can't hold it you know um when you're guiding yeah it's debilitating yeah but it, it it bothers me personally. Like when I, I, I noticed that just the other day I was out uh, in the Alpine and with a, a guest who wanted to kind of work on leading. And, and I was, I had climbed the same route like a, a few months before with, with my partner and she was kind of, you know, wanting to like lead some easier pitches. And I was like, ah, oh, it's just like route finding loose rock like this isn't a good place to do it and and like I found myself kind of allowing this guest to do it and it was it was really fun work as a guide to like be there and like coach him you know it was like still like quite easy manageable train um, but I had this sort of realization that I'm like man I wouldn't let Christina lead this necessarily but I'm letting this guest who I've never climbed with before he'd climbed with other guides at the operation and, and like had good, good info on him and like could kind of trust that. But, um, it was a little jarring to me, to be honest. And I think a lot about just the weight of what we do and, and how we deal with risk. And I think for the most part, when, when you're working as a ski guide, you know, we have, good operational protocols and you're working with your other your guides, even if you're not like right there with them in the terrain, like you're discussing conditions, you're using run lists, having a good AM meeting process. And like, you can kind of fall back on that a little bit. And it's, I think where I get most kind of scared and feel the weight of the risk is just that those times when like, when the shit hits the fan, when like the weird thing happens, or if you're in, new terrain or unfamiliar terrain or conditions are just more complicated. You know, it's like, I think that the biggest difference I see between maybe my approach to the risk 
both when I'm guiding or just out recreationally versus some of my other partners who don't guide or, or work professionally in the field. Like I can't escape that idea of like all the things that could go wrong. And I, I think if you boil it down, it's just a, maybe a higher level of conservativeness. Um, but yeah, I've had plenty of friends. I mean, knock on wood, like I haven't had any close friends be seriously hurt or, or worse in the mountains, but like a lot of close calls. And I'm just like, man, like what I've put myself in this situation and it's easy to armchair quarterback it, especially like kind of being all righteous is like, I'm a guy, like I would never do that. But then you think about it and you're like, well, I actually have done that. And I probably could make that mistake. And it's not even a mistake. You know, it's just like the mountains are really dangerous environment and things can and do go wrong that you can't foresee. So um, I think to, to sum up my answer to your question is just like, I, I've gotten really good at, at bailing, you know, to the point where as a, as a guide, I'm like, I kind of question my competence sometimes, like I should be able to handle this or like punch through this, but it just it doesn't seem worth it. And, um, but I do in terms of like prep and, and going through the process that we teach people, I still do that quite a bit. Now, if I'm going, you know, it, it's, if conditions have been consistent and I'm in a very familiar area, like I might not put as much time into my plan. Like you just, yeah, you kind of, mm-hmm. you kind of automate that a little bit, um, you know, and, and you're always risking being complacent, but uh, it drives my, my partner nuts. Like we'll be going skiing the next morning and I'm like in bed on my laptop to like midnight, just like, you know, the, my brain likes to have every sort of option mapped out and have like everything as planned as possible, which is, it's kind of like an impossible task, you know, like at some point you have to just go out there and make your decisions and react. But yeah, I've, I've gotten grief a few times when she's like, can't we just kind of like hang out and, you know, cuddle or watch TV, like or just put the computer away. I'm like, no, I gotta like, I'm not sure about like, you know, do we go to this call or like take this ramp? And yeah, so I, I tend to overthink in the prep phase, regardless of whether I'm working or not. And then hopefully you do a good job of that. And then when you get out there, you can just have fun and, and fall back on your plan and, and not have to make like super hard decisions once you're out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a bit different for everybody, right? We all have different personalities and I'm a perpetual overthinker as well, so I can definitely relate to that. But I know certain people that that uh, you know spend half the time I do prepping for a day out in the backcountry, and they're just as prepared as I am. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's something I work on. I, I try to find the right balance of it. Um, mm-hmm. I guess there's there's not a whole lot of downside or harm in overthinking it, as long as you can shut it off at a reasonable point. Well, let's talk a little bit about your process, just kind of like a, a cliff notes of tour planning. Just, you know, it's early in the season and, and I think it's good for everybody to kind of hear about, you know, other professionals that that do take the time to tour plan. So what factors are you thinking about before you're going out into the backcountry skiing? I, I mean, I wish I had something more exciting to say, but it's it basically, you know, copy paste of like your area trip plan or, you know, whether it's. I tell students a lot, like whether you're looking at the little like cutesy, like 
trip planning page in your blue book or like an operational form that I use for the guide service. Like it's the same process. So um, kind of decide on a general area. And then I start with the weather. I go back like, you know, depending on what's been happening with the weather, maybe I go back 24 hours, maybe I go back a week um, and then feed that into like current weather and forecasted weather. And then start looking at like, okay, like big picture. What do I know about the snowpack? And I try to track it. Um, and uh, with my work with VSIN, you know, like a lot of our, our clients and systems are in the Wasatch and then we have, um, CDOT has a, a, an installation down the San Juans. And so I'm, I'm always trying to keep track of that snowpack just so I can kind of keep on top of like what those clients are doing. And then, I'm back and forth between the front range and, and Washington a lot during the winters these last few years. So trying to keep tabs and maybe going more like weekly, um, just kind of mm-hmm. checking in like, okay, what's going on big picture. Um, but by, by doing that work and that prep, it, it makes my planning for a given day a little easier. But so taking that, that knowledge that I've gathered, getting the big picture of the snowpack and then I'll, I'll check the, the public observations on like the CAIC website, uh, kind of check in with like friends, check in like what are people seeing at like through Colorado Mountain School, like because we're often out guiding in, in a lot of the areas I'd be skiing, right? So using that info. Um, and I generally wait uh, to even check like the public forecast, if, if at all, because um, I do like to kind of go through my whole process, come up with my own forecast and then Usually I'll compare it just to kind of like check in with myself. Um, but th- there's definitely days where I go out and my friends are like, oh yeah, they said this at, at like, you know, in the Alpine. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even look today. Cause you know, I think as, as you get more experience, you kind of see like, especially with the, with Colorado, like their forecast zone for the front range is so big. So it, it's not always directly relevant to, to where you're going for the day, but, um, yeah, to the, to the slope scale forecasting then that might be necessary for you. Um, and then I, yeah, kind of like circle back around to my kind of more micro route planning and have options. Like, I, I think the biggest thing for me is like always have options and, and have like very clear criteria for what's going to make me avoid one option versus another you know, kind of like trigger points. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not just being like, if we don't like this, we're not going to ski. It's like, okay, what specifically is gonna like lead us to feel like we don't like this slope? Like, is it looking for a particular layer or a particular characteristic of like the slab or the, the facets, you know? So, um, yeah, that, that's my, my process in a nutshell. Um, do you have any process around kind of like personal, uh, human factors or just kind of headspace. Do you check in with yourself about that before you head out? Probably not as much as I should. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I mean, I, I'm a huge believer in the the end of the day debrief, even if it's with myself. And uh, I haven't used it that much, but a, a few seasons ago, I kind of created this like scoring metric for myself and like would score each day you know, kind of like A plus C F minus. And it's like, uh, I think the idea, I mean, it's been popularized by Annie Duke, but the whole idea of, um, 
Oh, what does she call it? Like you basically, you, like you take the outcome resulting, right? Like, so if you take the outcome of the day out of the analysis and just look at like how you made decisions based on your plan, like, you know, it's like the A plus would be like, had a good plan. We stuck to it or we diverged from the plan with like proper evidence. And then, you know, like the C grade is like, yeah, we were like a little willy nilly. We had a plan, but we were kind of loose on it. And then, you know, like the, the fail is like, we just totally disregard our plan and, and skied or didn't ski something, you know, for no good reason. So I, I found that pretty helpful. And I think I, I still do it more informally when I kind of go through my own personal debrief, but um, yeah, I don't spend as much time checking in maybe on like kind of the, the pre-trip, just like how am I feeling? Like, did I not get enough sleep last night or am I feeling a little under the weather? Am I stressed out about work or something else? Like, um, I don't know. I'd like to think that I sort of subconsciously account for those things, but I should probably be a bit more like structured on it. Yeah, sure. I think we're all affected by that background, whatever's going on in life. If you're going through something hard or, or whatever, just, you know, if your mind's elsewhere, it's sometimes harder to be present in the mountains and, and, you know, take the time and, and energy to make the decisions that are necessary. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I feel it like when I'm working for sure, I mean, there's a lot of days where I have a lot of either work or just like personal stresses that I'm carrying and it, it affects like, you know, like how engaged you are with your, your guests, your students, right? Like it, I think I hopefully account for that enough in terms of risk management, uh, but just in terms of delivering like a great day to students or guests, you know, like you have to be fully there and fully engaged. And I think, yeah, I don't know, like shutting off all the other stuff before you go out. And I think having maybe building more of a ritual into like, as I'm putting my boots on, maybe like meditate through the, all the other things away. And then you come back at the end of the day, boots come off, turn the phone on, check your texts, check your emails. Like try to do that, but definitely not the best at it. Yeah. Something we can all, we can all work on. I know I can. Um, speaking of like habits or rituals, can you talk about any habits or rituals that you've picked up in the last couple of years that you feel like have helped you manage risk in the backcountry? I guess I've never really thought of it as a, a ritual per se, but I think one of the big ones for me is just the idea of like anchoring and, and kind of like habitualizing to yourself, like what's your goal for the day. And I kind of have heard this from, um, from Martin Vulcan and some of his, his friends that still live and work in Switzerland. And it seems to be a common mindset there with, with, a lot of the Swiss guys, but this idea like the goal is to come home and have dinner with your family at the end of the day. Um, and I think that's really important that whatever we anchor to, like, you know, we know this from, from all the psychology and, and research has been done out there. It's a powerful tool, but when the goal is to go ski, whatever, like this line or some face or this peak, you know, you're going to make decisions anchored to that mindset i guess it's it's a it's a parsed down version of strategic mindset really um 
Mm-hmm. But I, I kind of, even before I, I start to implement like a strategic mindset on how I'm choosing terrain, it's like, what is my personal goal? And if the first thing and the first priority, if you actually say it to yourself is to like come home safe and smiling at the end of the day, um, you're just going to make better decisions. And it seems obvious. Like I think we'd all say that is our goal, but I find like saying it to myself and writing it down definitely helps me like keep that front and center in my mind. Um, and then another thing is I've just noticed that I'm sure you've seen this and there's days, you know, where everything just feels right. Like there's days where you ski like pretty consequential terrain and it just feels good and feels right. And, doesn't feel intimidating or scary right and then there's days where you're out just like you feel like you're tiptoeing through even mellow terrain and so i've found that there's no reason that i can justify for myself of like moving through a day with that like nervous knot in the pit of my stomach like if i'm feeling that it's just time to go do something mellow and and the times are there where you whatever it is you want to take on and and ski or ride, you know, there's going to be days where the conditions line up and it it just feels, you know, maybe it's not going to feel like hundred percent safe ever, but, um, I don't know. You know what I mean? Do you have that where, you know, like some days you're just, and maybe it's not for any good reason. Um, you know, like maybe it's just one of those personal factors. It's got your like nervous system a little like tensed up for the day, but I'm like, if I feel that, I'm just not going to push it. Yeah, you got to listen to your gut when you're feeling that. And and I think we have a culture, I think we're getting better at it, but I think we have a culture um, that's kind of fueled by social media of people getting after it all the time. And, you know, we need to collectively make turning around cool again, you know, yeah. hashtag make turn around, turning around cool again. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, um, good and, hashtag. I'm going to use that one. <laughs> And being proud of those decisions, you know, not seeing them as a failure of a certain goal that we had for the day, but seeing that as a as a success within our personal growth in the backcountry, you know. And and um, I'm 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 very susceptible to beating myself up about not achieving some objective or having to change my plan. And and it, personally, I'm trying to work hard on that. At, 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 at just being being fine with turning around right and another thing is just like my expectations for the day like if i go out there and i'm like only gonna have a good time if i ski x y and z lines and i go past all of this really super fun mellow north facing terrain that i could just be making fun pow turns in and not really having many cares in the world about about getting hurt or getting caught in an avalanche then you know like i I, i've been working on just kind of adjusting my expectations for the day um, especially when i'm just personally skiing with friends yeah that i mean the whole the environment now with social media is just like fucking insane yeah there is that pressure and i know i feel it with with my career currently um you know in the winter have a lot of days where I'm at home working on the computer, doing other stuff for my job with VSIN and, you know, I'm 
not guiding as many days as I don't know. It, it, overall, I'm like, I feel like it's a good balance, but then the days when I'm not out and you like go on Instagram and everyone's out just like getting after it and it, it, it gets to you. I mean, it gets to me, uh, quite a bit and I have to really like check in with myself and yeah, just be okay with, I don't know. I, I spend a lot of days, um, especially being in the front range, I'll just go to the resort with the little ski muskies and get my vert in, get turns and have fun. And I think, uh, I think actually I heard this from Cody Townsend on the podcast somewhere, but he nailed this idea. Like you have to have, you have to have a variety of ways to go out and enjoy skiing and be in the mountains. And especially in a place like the front range where you typically have like a very dangerous snowpack. I mean, if, if you can have just as much fun going out and just doing uphill laps on the groomers or going Nordic skiing or, or skiing lifts, you know, like you're going to just have more options that are always appealing um, versus if you're just, you know, kind of like the backcountry purist, you're going to mm-hmm. want to get out more. And if, you, if you're not looking forward to those other options, you're just, you're going to inevitably be a, a little more likely to, to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, I think. So yeah, diversifying keep your, your options. Open. Yeah. Keep your options open, learn to enjoy the, the touring round days or, or just get into the spandex scene and go get fit. There you have it. Eddie talking about diversifying, um, talk about how you've diversified your work over the years and, and we've, you've alluded to it a little bit, but you work for VEASAN, avalanche control as well. So talk about what you do for them and, and kind of give some context to what VEASAN does. Yeah. So I'm, uh, kind of two jobs with VEASAN, uh, do project management and also a lot of the, like all the U S based finances and kind of admin work. And we've got a small team in the U S it's just three of us. Um, VEASAN avalanche control, it's a Swiss company. They've been around for 20 plus years now. Um, and the main thing that, that VEASAN makes is the, the avalanche tower. So it's a rack system pre-placed in, in the start zones and it holds a round of explosive charges. So it allows the operators to remotely trigger avalanches. Um, and I, so I got into that job, uh, I don't know, either by chance or just I like to see it as like keeping the eyes open for opportunities and, and taking it. But I had uh, a few years ago, a kind of a rough fall I uh, or autumn, you know, but I ended up with a pretty bad TBI, like a concussion and no good story from it. I literally just fainted and smacked my head on the, the concrete. And um, at that time I was just, I'd taken an Alpine exam and didn't pass it. And was kind of like on this sort of burnout trajectory with guiding. I was going to just like try and take all three exams. I just, just wasn't ready for him. And so all this kind of happened and I was like left at home and went back to Chicago and kind of recovered for a few weeks. And it was like, man, I don't have any safety net, you know, like just had, you know, basic Medicaid insurance, um, very little money in my savings account. It was like quickly dwindling, like, <laughs> spiraling credit card debt, kind of trying to get through this like final phase of paying through these exams and 
and lining up enough work. And, and so I was just kind of rethinking things and I was like, I got to kind of refocus on what I want to do. And then I was looking around for, for work and they were looking for uh, some bookkeeping help and having my background accounting. It was, they had posted on the avalanche association, a three website. And so I was like, Hey, I think, I think I'm your guy here. Uh, and it just, it's turned into a really awesome opportunity for me. Like um, basically what we do is, we work with the clients to kind of figure out the best placements and most efficient sort of array of the systems. And then we are involved with the installation uh, to, to varying degrees. Like sometimes we're actually doing the construction. Sometimes it's uh, like a third party contractor and we're just sort of managing the quality control and inspection, all that. And then we, we work with the clients to train them on, on the loading and operation of the systems. And then, if all goes well, like come October, November, the systems are up and running and we're, we're pretty hands off. So uh, it keeps me pretty busy in the summers. So it definitely eats into, you know, my, my guiding load in the summers, but it allows plenty of time in the spring and winter still to, to do a bunch of guiding. And um, it's really cool because I, you know, I ski patrolled for a couple of years at Eldora in the front range and, you know, they don't have a, a big avalanche program, mostly like some ski cutting and, and just forecasting and, and weather ops and all that. So I don't have the, the operational background with uh, explosives work and, and really being like the avalanche hunter. So now with this job, I get to, you know, get a fair bit of exposure to all different sorts of operations. Like we're, we're kind of 50-50 between transportation, the DOTs and ski areas now in the U.S. and then. In Canada and in Chile, we have a big, um, big business in the, the mining sector. Um, so it's kind of those three sectors that, that we that we work with. But uh, yeah, I mean, I get to work pretty closely with like the Alta Ski Patrol, Snowbird Ski Patrol, CDOT, UDOT, like just amazing teams, and they're, they're awesome clients. And it's cool to kind of see how they they use those systems and. Um, what are some valuable lessons that you've learned through your work as a project manager at VEASAN, either from kind of like an operational standpoint or, or just work-life balance? Um, well, like specific to what we do, I think a key lesson for me is when we're, when I'm going in and meeting with clients, it kind of, especially at that initial phase of they're like, Hey, we want to, put some racks into this piece of terrain and um, kind of change our program there. The bottom line is those operations, those uh, technicians, you're like, they know best. So um, I think learning from them and, and helping taking that input and helping to shape what VEASAN ultimately makes like a lot of our, the products we have, and there's, there's some stuff in, in development there's a little bit of kind of getting into the detection side of things. And um, a lot, almost all of that is driven by feedback from, from those clients. Um, mm -hmm. So it's pretty cool. I think just being humble and realizing that like the operator knows best, even if it's maybe not exactly in line with what like our the engineers over in Switzerland think they should do. Like we're kind of trying to always liaison there a little bit and um you know for example 
Um, Dave Richards over at Alta has been a big proponent of using pentalite shots. Uh, and, and the engineers and, and developers over in Switzerland were they're pretty adamant about like the emulsion mix that they've, they've recommended. And, um, but we, we've worked with them and, and Dave developed like a, a shot specifically for the Beeson tower. And it's, it seems we were working really well for them. And so we're, we're kind of like looking at like all these studies and seeing like their real world results and feedback and, and implementing that and making it work with our system or, or making our system work for, for the clients, I think is the, the biggest thing. Did that take modification to the towers or just uh, development of a different charge size? Um, yeah, just development of the, the actual charge. So like the tower itself has a, like a plastic shell that the explosives go into. So that we didn't modify. They, they built it to spec to, to fit into that. And it's cool. It's like to see that and it's, it's got some advantages in terms of uh, the, the main sort of like human input on the system is the actual like assembling of the charges and loading them into the, the boxes. So it actually makes that process better. And the, the clients are stoked because they get to use the, pencilite so from your experience talking to clients like what's the biggest push for for more ski areas moving towards racks is it just worker safety or ease of use or ability to fire um you know fire during the height of the storm cycle what seems to be the biggest driver to the adoption of the vsan towers uh i it's hard to pinpoint which one of those factors is most significant. I think it's, it's all of the above. I think, uh, worker safety is a, a big one. And, uh, with some of the bigger resorts, I won't, won't name names, but like, um, there's been sort of a reluctance to, to invest in this kind of infrastructure. Cause uh, you know, for a lot of the corporations, you know, you look at the ski patrol and it's just a cost center, right? Like there is no mm -hmm. profit coming in from it. So it's easy to, you know, move that down the priority list. But there were last year, like a number of close calls and an increase in injuries to patrollers. So I think that has moved the conversation forward a little bit with a couple of the bigger, like corporate players in, in that side of the industry. Um, and I mean, I think just time savings, you know, if you put in, you know, let's say like, 10 rack systems in a piece of terrain versus uh, doing a, a mission with a, a launcher. I mean, I think uh, that's going to save like 40, maybe 60 minutes every morning. So that's like that much quicker getting the resort opened. Um, and then, yeah, being able to fire like at the peak of instability, which isn't always an option with, with other, uh, other mitigation efforts. I think that's a, a big advantage. Um, yeah. So all the above and it's in the U S it's just starting, you know, I mean, we've, we've had Gazak systems around, so racks have, have been around, but um, compared to Europe, um, you know, for, I don't know the numbers for other types of racks, but there's, we have like, I think over 700 VEASAN towers in operation now, most of those in Europe at this point. Uh, and they've, they've been operational in Europe for two decades now. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think the Europeans are, uh, 
they have a different approach to the risk in ski areas, right? Like, as we know, a lot of the ski areas, like if you go off the piste, even though it's kind of in the, the boundary of the resort area, it's, it's assumed that like you're taking on your own risk as, as a skier. Um, well, in the U S like we, that's just unacceptable and like would never fly. So we have to have like a much higher assurance of sort of like control work has been done and that things are stable before they're open. And, and even in training that's not open. Um, <clears throat> so I, we, one thing we do see is kind of funny. We had one, like the CEO came over this summer and we were flying around Alta and <laughs> they were looking at like some of the new towers and he's just like, why are there so many, you know, like in their mind, they're like, you need like one or two up here. And they, they, they sort of push like a bigger effective range than I think a lot of the ski areas here are, are willing to accept. And, and again, that's just one of those things where we're learning from our clients and, and see what works for them. And, you know, we, mm-hmm. we try to work with them that we don't want to like sell more towers than they need. Um, but if they're like, we want to put three here instead of two, then, you know, there's, there's no harm in that. So, um, well, and they know, like you said, they know the nuances of that terrain so yeah, well, right. Yeah. Such a long operational history in, in most of these places. Yeah. And the, you know, there's, there's downsides to racks, right? Like any mitigation method, you know, like you do have duds. Uh, we have one of the bigger challenges with our system is like communication and power. So, uh, not so much of an issue in the U S at least so far where we've put them in, but I know up in Canada with some of the mining operations, like you've got to, our systems by default work off of a cell modem. So you've got to have cell connection to, to operate it. Um, so there's the option to use satellite, which is, it just adds cost to the, the operator. And then, um, they operate on, a series of batteries and solar panels, but some of the stuff in Canada, like they have to go to fuel cells just because like you don't get sun and it's just storming and it's so cold. And uh, so there's things like that. And if, if one of those issues comes into play and you've, you know, if you're putting in a rack system, you are kind of putting all your eggs in one basket for that piece of train. And then if that system doesn't work, you can be in a bad spot. So um, yeah, it's, 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 pretty interesting to, to get the exposure to all these different nuances and different operations and, and what works and what doesn't work. Well, Eddie, a big, a big focus of this podcast, as you know, is talking about close calls or lessons learned throughout people's careers. Do you have anything that stands out in your mind that, that, uh, the day that you'll never forget that you, you know, learned, a, learned a big lesson, maybe changed the way you operate or anything like that? Yeah, I mean the the one that I always come back to it actually happened on my advanced ski guide course through the MGA, and we were up in um, Pemberton skiing on a glacier, and we're like I'm about to take over the lead, and it was like a moderate hazard day, and we had noted some instabilities, and I think we I wasn't paying enough attention to like what the other groups were seeing and, and all this. And, but the, the main thing was like, I'm about to take off and, and my instructor examiner kind of is like, okay, you're like, I just, you know, he was trying to get across this point of like, when you're ski guiding, we want to like ski a pitch of fall line skiing. And then if we've got to like traverse, like do a hard traverse and then do another pitch of fall line skiing rather than the, like the awkward double fall line skiing. Right. Pretty. Nobody loves the descending. No. Course. Yeah. And so, but he's kind of like, put this in my head and, and, 
And that was what I was anchored to. And so we're like, it's just like beautiful, awesome boot top skiing, like nice, like 30th degree wide open glacier. And, and it got to the point where I'm like, okay, we need to probably start traversing here. But it was kind of like that descending traverse. And just like in my mind, I flashed back to him saying like, I want the fall line skiing, like show me good skiing. And I just like punched it over this convexity like I kind of misread the convexity, but it was just like, it was such good skiing. I'm like, we just got to keep going. And sure enough, I like skied down. The group stopped behind me because they were not falling prey to stupidity and human factors. And I kicked off like a, I don't know, size one and a half soft slab and, you know, skied, skied off of it. But uh, it was incredibly embarrassing. And he was like, he even even though he like put this idea in my head, he specifically was talking about this point and how he'd seen a candidate like break off a pretty big slab that ran to Valley bottom, like at that point. And so at the time, like I didn't realize that was the point he was talking about, but um, the, the thing that stuck with me, like to this day, it was like that anchoring, right? Like, cause that was the thing that was in my mind first and foremost is like, give the examiner like a great ski run. Um, so I think that happens on like a day scale and then it happens on smaller, like slope scale, you know, portions of the day, like what, what we anchor to and what we're prioritizing in our mind, even if we don't know it really drives our decisions. Um, well, I would imagine that was amplified by being in an exam setting too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely that pressure. Like anyone who's gone through those programs has experienced that. And it's, I can say it's pretty refreshing as soon as I finished that, there was this like immense liberation. I felt like no matter if I was skiing or climbing, like I used to go out every single decision. I was thinking really like, okay, what's an examiner going to think of this rather than just like seeing it for what it is and making the right decision. You know, you like overthink that. So, um, yeah, I think that the exam pressure came into play there, but I mean, mainly it was like no excuses on my part. It was just like, terrible decision and it like had i been with a group of guests they would have followed me right into it and on that day it it probably wouldn't have hurt or or killed anyone but like the thought of that that i like would have skied my group right into a a soft slab avalanche like man that that's still kind of crushes me <laughs> and like all the more, more so embarrassing, like with a bunch of peers and like on a program like that. Luckily it was, it was on the, it was during the instruction phase of the program. It wasn't on the, the exam component. <laughs> Cause that probably would have been a fail at that point. But um, yeah, I mean, that was a big one for me. And other than that, I mean, uh, fortunate, like I haven't had any other real like close calls or incidents terms of avalanches so um i think that's more just luck you know um but i I do think it with that and and what we were talking about earlier just this level of conservatism you know and and the goal at the end of the day being to to come home and have dinner with your loved ones that that does a lot for me nice that seems like a the right mindset to have well, Eddie, I think uh, we should put a wrap on it here at this point, and, and uh, I appreciate you sitting down 
and talking to us on the Avalanche Hour podcast. Um, I appreciate all your thoughts. I was hoping you could just talk briefly. I believe there's a, a pro training scholarship that's being put out by VEASAN and the A3, and, and maybe you could just mention that real quick. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the deadline for it is November 15th. It, there's two $1,500 scholarships, so one being reserved for only candidates who are underrepresented, like self-identifying as such. And, um, yeah, you can find the link if you go to A3's website uh, under the scholarships link, it's on there. And it's a quick little like Google form and like 500 word essay. So last year, like I said, we had, it was like 67% of the applicants were identified as underrepresented, which we were stoked to see. Mm-hmm. And there were like 30 applicants last year. I think we rolled it out a little late, but um, so hopefully more this year, but you know, the numbers are low. So you got pretty good odds. So um, definitely get out there and apply for that. If you're going to be taking a pro one or pro two in the next year. Nice. Awesome. Well, thanks for doing that for the community. Um, And yeah, check out the application. Yeah. And thanks for what, for what you do, Caleb. I mean, this, this is a awesome resource for our community. I, I get stoked on every episode. I love hearing people just chat about their, their careers and how we're all making it work somehow. Right on. Well, I appreciate I appreciate you listening, and I appreciate your thoughts, and I appreciate the support from Vison to make this show happen. So, um, yeah, hope to get out skiing with you soon. Yeah, we need to, dude. We need to. Yeah, let me know when you're coming coming back up to the Pacific Northwest. Just try and link up. For sure. All right. All cheers, right. buddy. Ciao. All right, I hope you enjoyed that one, everybody. Thanks, Eddie, for the great conversation. Music on today's episode is provided by Ketza, with permission from the artist. Tracks you heard were Rogue in the beginning and Cartel de Funk, taking you out of the hour here. You can find more of Ketza's tracks on their website, ketza.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. Check out more of his work at his website, www.miketea.com Don't forget to subscribe to our social media outlets. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Avalanche Hour Podcast and it's a great way to keep up with current releases of episodes as well as a great way to ask some questions of some of the guests, some of the upcoming guests. I usually post a story previous to an interview and allow followers to Submit questions via the Instagram story. So check that out. Um, If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's super helpful to get those reviews. We've been having some great reviews come in. If you're a longtime listener, it it means a ton to me if you leave a, a review as well as a rating. So go on to Apple Podcasts. Let's bump up the reviews on Apple Podcasts, and let the world know that you're enjoying the show. While you're at it, spread the word. Tell a friend about the show. Get them hooked. Please send any feedback that you have to me and the team at the Avalanche Hour Podcast by sending an email to theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. 
Our next episode will be released next week on October 20th, where we highlight an interview with Jeremy Hankey of Revelstoke, Canada. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.